Now You Know, Subtitle Turn, by Irving Eugene. Chapter 1, Mother Dearest. I love my mom. She is noted around the house as tangy to me due to her sweet nature and the rest of my family as tingy for creole meaning fancy. She did not always enjoy a lifestyle of the finer things, but she has good taste. She can notice all the best fashion and she carries herself accordingly. She buys many clothes as a guilty pleasure. As most women do, it seems, I buy her things when I can. One time I gifted her a heart-shaped necklace. She is due for an upgrade, but in due time life will present her with one. She smells kind, like a true mother, always considerate yet slightly brash, probably due to external influences and for strong care of others. She tends to get upset with a short fuse, but it is because she cares too much. She shows affection in the traditional sense by selecting necessities for my family. She will not shop only for her pleasure, but also for the satisfaction of gifting clothes for others, household appliances, vitamins, supplements, and things of healthy nature. She is proud and generous. She is an amazing cook and finds satisfaction in making a house feel like a home. She would never let anyone do the laundry and she have the correct fixation of keeping the house tidy. I return the favor by buying her small gifts like a speaker, but I know what she truly enjoys is the time we spend together. She likes going to the park, beach, and restaurants with me. Something I used to do mostly with friends and lovers, but I am realizing a mom deserves the same attention or even more. My mother is a trained nurse, therefore she has the skills and nurture to tend to my wounds. Ever since I was young, she would assess me for cuts, burns, and anything of that matter. Anytime I require a patch-up, my mom comes to the rescue. In the past, she was busy with work helping the less fortunate. Now she is returning to help her number one patient, me. I am feeling fine at the moment, but it is a calming feeling to know someone can help whenever the time calls for it. I am grateful. She can be demanding, but that is the sacrifice you make for someone you love. And I love her dearly. She knows how to strike a nerve with me, but she is truly delightful. She enjoys to garden and relax as I drive her around town. On the surface, it can appear she is high maintenance, but in actuality, she is really uncomplicated. A hug and kind words make her day. It is her attention to detail that made her a skillful sewer in the past and in the moment. You can depend on her to fix your clothes of any damages or misfitting. She can even take things to the next level by curating replica fashionable clothes. I do not know how she developed this skill, but the word on the street is she got it from her parents. She is concise and decisive, like a surgeon with her steady hands. My family jokes that if she were born in America, she could have been practicing. There are childhood stories of her making clothes for my uncle to fancy ladies. The most profound thing she ever made was her own wedding dress. She is a gem. Chapter 2. Coronavirus My mom needed me, and I was away in Buffalo. She was ill with sickness. From the stories I hear, things were bad. She was at death's door. She could not breathe properly. She was coughing constantly, fever of high temperature, and low oxygen levels. She was bedridden. My father had to come to the rescue and help her, taking her to clinics and medical examinations. I wish I was there, my only mother, but I was unaware of the situation. By God's grace, she recovered. I am not a devout Christian, but I have faith. I believe it is a possibility that due to my mom's constant prayers in the past and today that God granted her second life. My mom is spiritual lady, and perhaps it has meaning we do not know. She still suffers pain, coughing, and other issues I should not mention. She needs care and support. Now that I am home during this time, I will make life easier for her. Me and my mother hope that we are blessed for good health. Now things have changed, the world should care for my mom as she helped so many misfortunate children, including myself. Chapter 3. The Unknowing Future We fear the things we do not understand. Life brings trauma, glory, and hope for a better tomorrow. We must live in the present. Life is a gift that is granted upon us each day. Do not leave the world without providing a lasting impact. It can be with raising a family or creating something meaningful. You live and you learn. Have forgiveness but remain salty. Sometimes people are unaware of the decisions they make for better or worse. Be accountable with your ideas and actions and rely on God's mercy. My mother has made me reliant on faith. With her support and God's guidance, anything is possible. Mom here is the wish that you remain a part of my life for a long time. I pray us to have a meaningful and everlasting life. Thank you for your love. Don't go blind. 
Subtitle, Seeing is Believing, by Irving Eugene. Chapter 1, Catastrophe. Life was difficult. To find hope, he had to escape with drugs. In addition, society told him he needed them. Paul was ordered by the court to seek counseling and medical therapy. He was a havoc to society. Breaking the law by having sex in public and peeing outside in open spaces. He cried like a baby at the courtroom, but it was no use. He went to the hospital three times within two years, and this was his final strike. It was decided he needed mandatory therapy. All in all, it was not completely his fault. It was a strict upbringing in the fact that medication he took was crippling. Drug X was making him lose his vision. At the prime age of 25, he could not see. The healthcare professionals did not care of the side effects. They told him he need to be prescribed this medication to be stable. With constant fights with his father that induced the situation, he did not care either. Perhaps the father saw it as revenge for disobeying his authority, or he wanted his son to be square like him. He took his son to get glasses and communicated with the healthcare professionals of his support. The son was frustrated, but there is karma in life. He would wait patiently for the tides to turn. Paul gained weight, became lethargic, and could not work a traditional job as the medication made him slow and confused at many times. He was forced to stay home and be crippled. The drug removed any sense of independence. His mother had to brush his teeth. The worst was yet to come. Drug X kept in mind was prescribed, even removed the freedom of his right arm. It was a stroke appearance. He held his forearm close to his chest. He was paralyzed with that appendage. He realized life was cruel. His parents tried to help, but they were part of the problem. Paul was maturing, though, and did not want to pull all the blame on his family. God has a plan, and he needed to take responsibility for his own actions and deal with this circumstance. He went to a neurologist, and he was of no use. He performed basic tests and said he has a slight issue with his gait. There's a huge faulty of the health industry. Also, medicine and health are complicated. It is rare to find a physician, pharmacist, social worker, and nurse to be caring yet insightful enough to manage the health of all their patients. They are jobs at the end of the day. Everyone is simply working for a paycheck, not taking in the severity of every patient's health. Paul would stop taking drug X, hoping he could return to better health. But this drug was an intramuscular injection that stayed in the system for quite some time. His body had to fight this disease. This would lead to further hospitalizations as his mind was angry for the possibility he might be crippled forever. Imagine being forcibly damaged by society, especially your community and family, the ones who were supposed to love and protect you from the harsh world. He realized he could not rely on anyone. He had to learn to understand his own body, mind, and soul. He had to press on. Nobody understood the complications of his life. Prescribed medications at the end of the day are trial and error, especially with mental health. It was embarrassing for him to communicate with people during this horrific time. He could not open up and his ailments were noticeable. It was awkward spending time with girls when he was crippled. The girl did not understand. She simply would ask him to just fix his arm. This made Paul upset. Deep down, he wanted vengeance. After several months, he was cured. God had blessed him with full use of his arm and his natural 20-20 vision returned. He was glad but still restless. As always, everyone wanted him to take a new medication. They could not comprehend he was angry at the fact of being a guinea pig, a test dummy because he did not fit in and was fueled with frustration and ailments. It seemed that he was most healthy when not on any medications but traumatized after experimentation. The next prescribed medication was drug Y. This drug made him gain weight and made his thoughts even more confusing. It was an oral medication. He swallowed the pill and developed a chemical imbalance in his brain. One night, when taking the medication, he felt horrible. He developed lockjaw. Paul was rushed to the hospital. His tongue was frozen and his face was positioned awkwardly. He could not move his mouth at his own will. An emergency that gave him an IV once his family told them that he was taking drug Y. Nobody cared. This just fueled more trauma for Paul. Alone in pain and misery. It added up to more sad memories in his brain. The lockjaw resides and he would discontinue drug Y. And still nobody understood why he was always upset, frustrated, and restless. The court did not understand. His family did not understand. It was either he could not properly explain to them this ordeal he was experiencing. Maybe they were malice and heartless. Who knows? 
All Paul could do is grow on his own. God will judge everyone when the time comes. Chapter 2. Intermission Paul in his youth liked to drive fast. With his friend in the car, he competed with the other friend's car and drove fast around his neighborhood. The friend crashed his car on the back of his car. He was not harmed, but noticeable damage was done to their cars. When parents got involved, things became serious. They were all reprimanded by their parents. Their friendships being fragile would not last. When things get serious, sometimes you lose friends. Lost hope in his parents' feeling that Paul was not doing anything productive, he planned to join the military. It was either the Navy or Air Force. His father drove him to catch his bluff. During the preliminary examination, he achieved high remarks on the tests. They were interested in him. The military staff described the benefits of the job, helping to support newcomers join on the weekend. One soldier described his expertise with computers and mentioned that the military is not the fighting machine that it has been represented in the past, that it was technology-based, and that someone of Paul's knowledge would not have to do traditional combat. It was a team utilized to bring out the best ability of its members. Paul continued conversations, but the time was not right. He did not know if he belonged as he was not a disciplined person. He was more of a freethinker and would not like to forcibly conform to ideologies. He respected them, as his family was involved in military and government. One member described his passion to join after 9-11 as passion was high in New York. He quit his lucrative business job to join the forces. Paul appreciated this, but it just was not the right fit. He was a pacifist in nature. He was left to his typical life of medications and thoughts. Chapter 3. Freedom Paul would enjoy some freedom and spend time with his cousin. They went out to the bars at night. Everyone was friendly to Paul. He appreciated the company of kind people. At one point, a woman who was engaged came up to Paul and started flirting. She was attractive but slightly drunk. With little small talk, she jumped onto Paul and kissed him. Paul held her close, returning the kiss. After quite some time, she got off. The fiancé took her away. Paul's cousin talked to him about his misbehavior and lectured him of his wrongdoing. Their friends laughed and rejoiced. It seemed every time Paul went out in public, something interesting occurred. His loved ones knew he was a troublemaker and only wanted him to go out in public with their supervision. Maybe they love him too much, but sometimes you have to let the bird free from its nest to explore and wander. Surge by Irving Eugene Chapter 1. Apathetic Imagine being able to escape from the real world within minutes. The real world tends to hide most of its most useful information. With the swallow of the ultimate pill, your life changes. Changes for the better. It is the cure of many men's shortcomings. The faulty of laziness, depression, anxiety, and ego. Drug Z makes one alert and attentive to fine details. Jubilant and removed from negative emotions and feelings. Full of life and energy. Ecstatic to converse and enhancement of intellect. You could read for hours retaining the best knowledge. You can regurgitate facts and become self-aware at a higher level. Utilizing acquired information to create art, literature, and solving scientific problems. Math equations are understood with the capabilities to teach concepts to others. Drug Z is beneficial to get ahead not only in academics but in life in general. With the medication there is an increase in social and emotional intelligence. Be likable and charismatic. Chapter 2. Interesting Irving was boring, awkward, and lacked committed focus. Irving was lucky and prescribed this new medication. It increased his metabolism, provided focus, and was a nootropic. The greatest drawback was that it was addictive. He felt alive for the first time with the euphoria. He was always on the chase for that first high. The world seemed to make sense. It was as if it took away his innocence and naivety and opened his mind to the real world. Everything was slower as he was the master of his own domain. He was able to pass his examinations in school, but more importantly, he was able to write his own books of the intricacies of life and essays on profound topics. He would become bestseller author. People could not believe the simplicity yet awareness of his novels. It was as if he signed his soul to the devil by the new form talent he possessed. He felt ashamed to mention drug Z. He thought people would suggest it as cheating. In addition, he thought this gave him the competitive advantage he needed. If everyone were aware, it would level the playing field to the point. He would be an ordinary writer. Nobody wants to be labeled as a fraud, but Irving justified the use of drug Z because he was prescribed it and did his own research. Chapter 3. Addiction When you can become numb to the world and ignore all the negative things, 
Why would you want to return, to become excellent at something you enjoyed? Drug Z is a taste of true happiness that is not provided in the world. Trapped by Irving Eugene Barry Smith was a struggling student. He did not belong anywhere. He worked ambitiously in school but could never reap the benefits of his labor. Everyone advised him to keep trying, but he never gained anything except superficial societal acceptance. All his seniors advised him to attain the lifestyle of the past of being educated, gain a somewhat lucrative job in medicine or engineering, and be independent to start a family. This lifestyle did not suit him. See, he was a funny and nice guy, and everyone wanted him to develop to something he was not. He was eccentric and friendly. Society wanted to quiet his tone. His dad never liked when he was too ecstatic, and his mother just followed her husband's orders. She would pretend to be defiant, but she did everything he said. The father wanted to plan everything for the family. His plans would backfire, which happens when you always plan for others but would place the blame on his children. His father was a hard-working nobody and enjoyed the quiet life of being in complete control of his domain. Peace of mind when telling everyone what to do. He provided that was his best attribute. Boring and controlling was all he was. Most people tolerated his behavior for the fact that he had considerable wealth, but nobody liked him. Perhaps he was doing his best. Nobody is perfect. However, he never looked in the mirror to see the negative impact he has on others, or maybe he just lives with himself knowing he provides material things. At the end of the that is all that is expected of the traditional man of the house. Barry always found it strange that his father would be domineering and lackluster with his children, but always wanted to put on a show for guests as kind and hospitable. It was fake, but maybe that is what society is all about. Hiding your true colors, but presenting to strangers as respectable and considerate. Barry did not like the whole appearing as one to thing to strangers, but not placing the same amount of effort to your actual loved ones. That is, one defining factor of the problems the father and son faced together. Never seeing eye to eye. Barry wanted the wealth, but did not want to pretend. When he did pretend, it was with writing. He created a world of literary fiction for venting. His father would read, but only found comfort in pseudo-intellectual novels. Nothing with real emotion or grit. Just something that added to vocabulary or perceived knowledge. His father was aware of some of his shortcomings and would honestly mention them in private, but never do anything to change for the better. Just sulk in a quiet moment of disapproval. Due to pressure to succeed, constant lack of acceptance, trauma, and uncontrolled emotions, Barry would have to be on medications. One to be alert, one to sleep, one for anxiety, and one to control his temperament in general. He had to manage his life by escaping from himself. His father liked the fact that he was on all this medication for it seemed to have a neutering effect. It must be understood that his father was cowardice and frail, therefore avoiding confrontations, always making Barry dependent on him and being manipulative. As Barry was vibrant and stocky, he played along and let his father have control of his life as he needed him for certain things. His family was traditional and pseudo-liberal, believing that your children should be placed on as many legal prescribed medications but stray away from anything else. As many have experienced, even prescribed medications can be a gateway drug. His father, being old school, would refrain from even prescribed medications even though his body was failing him, but would advise and recommend his wife and children on medications who were in better health than him on most days. So is life pushing on to others would you need most? Time would catch up to him as it does for everyone. His father would remind his children how much they needed him. Barry would just swallow the misbehavior and was fond of the good days when his father was calm and compliant. It was not in Barry's nature to hold a grudge as God teaches lessons to all his children. To have malice in your heart will catch up to you in one way or another. Barry found peace being trapped at home taking all his drugs. His only recreational use was alcohol and nicotine. Two things his parents hated at first but are slowly understanding that is who he is. Also, by being subjected to all prescribed drugs, they felt he could manage himself. Although they did make sure to manage his habits of the amount of intake. Probably for the best. Barry realized if he complied to most of his parents' rulings, he would be accepted peace of mind and solitude to his own devices. Due to struggling mental health and life of control, Barry at this moment could not take on the responsibilities of a traditional lifestyle. He could not work a nine to five, study at the doctoral level, start a family and be independent. He was crippled. 
he had to pay dues in his passion of writing and hope for success. With the correct dosage of a stimulant, motivation from a confrontation or a failure, Bayery could spill his guts on a book. Some days were bad with therapy and the dislike of an action from someone he knew, but he persisted finding solace in his writing. Many thought he could not be successful. How could you achieve anything worthwhile without clocking into a profession? Many people only respecting success in the form of monetary achievements. This was on the back of Mary's mind, but he believed good work brought good things in life, especially with writing. Not only was it a form of therapy so that one day he may be self-sufficient, but also he could spread his influence into helping others. Make no mistake, this was a selfish endeavor for Barry, as he wanted to improve himself. He knew you entered this world alone, and you leave alone as well. Barry knew that all his short stories and books would make a difference. One day he would be established with many works, and all the success he could dream of would come true. He just needed to keep releasing pieces. God has a plan for everyone. Barry believed he was finally on the right path. He would escape from the trapped life he lived to a world worth living. Right now, Barry is working on a masterpiece that will uplift himself and create a better world. How to Escape Death, Subtitle, Every Man's Tale, by Irving Eugene. Chapter 1, Fallen Angels. This story starts off with Adam East floating in a pond half beaten to death, bloody face with cuts and torn clothes. He has little energy and is in a surmountable amount of pain. He stays in the water, barely breathing and half conscious. There's a lot of commotion surrounding him with lights from police. They come to the scene to witness this poor young man. In brutal agony, he makes a sign of peace with a joyful yet grimacing smile. He raises in a small motion a peace sign with his left hand barely above water. The scene changes to a more recent recollection of Adam being abruptly awakened in bed by a family friend. He says, I did not know if you were alive or not. You did not make a sound as you slept. You have been sleeping for hours. Adam appeared fine but restless and said, I'm okay. The family friend stated, It's your dad. They called. Adam, in noticeable discomfort, said, It's time. The two nodded and agreed. They find themselves driving to the hospital. The friend drinking from a stainless steel canteen while driving. He said, It's whiskey, as he gulped a swig. He was buzzed but had the confidence and tolerance as if he had been doing this for a while. He passed it to Adam, who felt uncomfortable but wanted to numb the pain. He took a sip and felt his blood rush. Adam was sad. His friend told him, you were always close with your father. Adam looked through his phone and stared at a photo of him and his dad playing miniature golf at an amusement park. He remembered the good times they shared. He placed the photo as his screensaver as a sign of respect and thoughtfulness. They arrived at the hospital. It was a dreadful depiction of his sick dad connected to tubes and machines. He could tell that he did not have much time. His mother met them at the unit. Adam shed tears as they removed his father from life support. All of them felt ill to say goodbye like this. His mother said, Be strong, Adam. This is life. Adam just stared at the blank wall, imagining the last breath of life escaping his father. It was something he thought would never happen. He never expected his father to leave him at the ripe age of 23. The two had so much to live for. Movies to watch together, walks at the park, and just talking about life. Adam wanted to be removed from the whole situation. He rushed to the bathroom during the remainder of the procedure. He washed his hands vigorously and wiped his face with fresh water. He started to stare at himself through the mirror above the sink. A conversation ensued between him and what seemed like his dad. His pop stated, I was never good at being this great father figure to you. All I could do was provide. The rest seemed out of place and difficult. That is what a man is supposed to do for his family is to provide. Adam said, no, that's not true. You were always a great dad. Adam wanted direction. His dad said, go to Boston. His father said, remember the good times. Adam stared at his phone for solace. Now, Adam walking around New York City, going from bar to bar drinking, always finding a corner of a decent bar escaping with booze. In a drunken haze, he went to his ex-girlfriend's apartment. He was lost and wanted to find comfort in something he was familiar with. He had a leftover key and entered. The girl was with her current fling. He told her, I'm going to Boston. She said, if that's what you need to know, I hope the best for you, Adam. They hugged and reminisced on better days. He left, packed his clothes, and headed to the train station. Chapter 2. Scape. At the train, Adam had his headphones in and listened to music. 
Next to him was an older woman. She was sleeping. She abruptly woke up when Adam's music seemed too loud. He was drowning out his sorrow. The woman said, Are you okay? You seem sad. Adam mentioned, My father just passed away. The woman attempted to emphasize and stated, My father recently passed away too. Life is difficult, but we must press on. She said, I'm Angela. I'm from Boston. How about you? He found a comfort in her breaking the ice. He said, I'm Adam. I'm from New York. I'm headed to Boston as a chance to get away. She was intrigued and described that she was a professor at Harvard. Adam's attention was elsewhere. She stated, perhaps you do not want to talk. Adam persisted that everything was fine and that he was just stressed out. He discussed how his mind races at the moment. He wanted to go to Boston for clarity of thought. Adam asked, why were you in New York? Angela illustrated that I wanted to go to Madison Square Garden and see the Knicks play the Celtics. There has always been a rivalry between New York and Boston. It is amazing to experience the competition live from the garden. Adam remembered seeing the game on television. He suggested, it must be great to see the Celtics always beating the Knicks. The New York Knicks have not been good in a long time and the Celtics are at a higher class, being great since the establishment of the NBA with Bill Russell and later in the 1980s with Larry Bird. And you cannot forget the run with Paul Pierce. Angela described, Boston and New York are more connected than you think. My father was a big Celtics fan. He would have loved to be at the game with me. Adam, to change the subject from sad conversations, suggested to get drinks. They rejoiced in each other's company, exchanging good moments of the past and accepting opportunities for the future. Angela went to the bathroom after the festivities. What Adam did not know at the time is that she would not return. Supposedly, in the restroom, she lost consciousness and fell. This was traumatizing to Adam. Someone he had just connected with was in pain. Adam stared at his phone to calm his nerves. He looked at the screensaver of his late father. Adam daydreamed of Angela speaking to him. She said, I saw my father in heaven. He is doing well. I saw your father too, Adam. He wants you to be happy. Adam, he misses you. I told him that you are going to Boston. She ended the conversation with, Stay strong, Adam. He arrived at the Boston train station. The staff questioned him on the situation with Angela. They interrogated him on her status before entering the bathroom. Adam described how he cared for her. He said, I just met her. I never seen her before in my life before today. She is kind and caring. Is she okay? The workers told him she will be transported to the hospital, but she is in critical condition. She had some type of reaction to the alcohol or a panic attack. The main issue is that she hit her head on the sink during the, her dizzy state. Adam was shocked. He tried to learn more of the situation, but they resisted him. They asked a few more questions, but persisted he leave the station in all contact with Angela. The clientele advised him to continue his vacation and to enjoy his trip. Adam was distraught, yet listened to avoid further trouble. Adam walked through the station. A troubled blonde girl caught his attention. She had tears running down her face. She seemed stressed and upset. He went to her and said, Are you okay? She described that her mother had just been hurt on the train. She said, My mom had an anxiety attack or something. She hit her head. I'm her only daughter. I have to take care of her. She must have forgot to take her medication, or maybe she was overwhelmed with my grandfather passing. This is all too much. He said, Hey, I am Adam East. I was with your mother. She's a sweet lady. The girl replied, I am Stephanie. Do you know my mom? Adam stated, Yeah, I can help you with whatever you need. She said, No, but thank you for helping me with my mother. She wiped her tears and briefly held her hand on top of Adam's hand. Adam, being awkward by nature, moved his hand and said, It was nice meeting you, Stephanie. They both smiled and Adam grabbed his belongings and walked away to exit the station. Chapter 3, Boston Adam was in an Uber, taking in the captivating scenery of Boston, the historical buildings of the 18th century, the red brick buildings and pathways, the classic clock towers. All he knew was of the TD Garden and Quincy Market. Of course, famous schools like Harvard and Boston University. He felt accepted in what seemed like a sports town with an academic twist. The city was full of history from Benjamin Franklin to John F. Kennedy. He enjoyed the popular Sam Adams beer. He found pride in literary figures like Phyllis Wheatley and leaders such as Crispus Attucks. During the Uber drive, he noticed an ambulance vehicle passing by. Soon after, he sees Stephanie sitting in a parked car. He demands that the Uber driver stop. He tends to Stephanie. Adam reminds her of their meeting earlier at the train station. She's confused but accepts Adam. Stephanie describes how she has to follow the ambulance with her mother, 
but she could not focus. He suggested to drive her car and follow the ambulance with her. During conversation, Adam discovers that Stephanie's a pianist. That makes him more interested in her. She is flattered. Stephanie mentions that she has played piano for many years, that her mother has helped develop her skills. Without much notice, Adam gets involved in a car accident traveling close behind the ambulance truck. The ambulance vehicle loses control through all the traffic and Stephanie's mother dies in the fatal accident. They both witness her corpse on the street. The two were horrified. Angela's body was bruised, bloody, and tangled. It was a horrible sight to see. They ran out of the car. Stephanie was frantic to see her mother in this state. Adam tried to console her, but she was rightfully upset. She was crying and angry. When things settled down, Stephanie went in a new ambulance vehicle with her deceased mother. They drove away from the scene. Adam in a new city and troubled just went about his way. He entered Stephanie's car and was alarmed to see a silver gun in her purse. He placed the purse and her belongings in the back seat and drove away. Adam, contemplating of what to do, thought it would be best to go to New England Conservatory of Music, as Stephanie mentioned she worked there. He wanted to take in the sights of the city while at the same time observing her place of worship. When arriving, he viewed the classical art of the building. By accident, he listened to the practice of the musicians. He was met by the instructor who was frustrated by the annoyance of Adam. It was obvious that he was out of place. He was carrying Stephanie's phone and it rang. That drew further attention to Adam at the musical rehearsal. He was becoming a pest. It was Stephanie, and she asked of Adam's whereabouts. He told her, I am at the conservatory. I wanted to see where you play. She admired Adam, but believed he was bothersome. She told him, please give my phone to the instructor. I want to advise him on my situation. Adam followed her orders. He was directed by the instructor to wait in the stands. After waiting for quite some time, the rehearsal continued. He noticed Stephanie playing the piano. She was exquisite and magnificent playing all chords on time with such ease and beauty. It was captivating. Adam was mesmerized. He did not make a sound. He respected the musician's performance and listened to every sound. He lost track of time as Stephanie finished and left the stage. She talked to what seemed to be her boyfriend. Stephanie stated, What do you want, Ulysses? He says, I heard of Angela's passing. I wanted to make sure you were okay. Ulysses was tall, dark, and handsome. You could tell there was something ferocious about him. He spoke in short sentences and had a deep, threatening voice. Adam was waiting by the corridor. Ulysses stated, Who is this prick? Adam, testing the water, said, Stephanie, great performance. Stephanie, forcibly confident yet nervous, said, Ulysses, do not worry. Adam is just a friend from New York. We just met. Ulysses stated, I miss your mother. She was beautiful at our wedding. She had unfinished business with my boss, Vincent. Adam, worried, said, You're married, Stephanie? The musical instructor arrived and said, Ulysses, I need you to leave immediately. Ulysses replied, No trouble. I need to see you soon, Stephanie. It was nice meeting you, Adam. Ulysses left the premises. Stephanie said, You should go, Adam. He replied, Where should I go? She said, Go to the Boston Harbor Hotel. Chapter 4, Love and Trouble Adam arrived at the hotel. It was swanky. He met an adventurous fellow there. He said, Hey, I am Jack. He pointed to another guy and stated, That is Benjamin. They made jokes and quirky remarks. They suggested that they should smoke pot. But first, let's go out for a drink, said Benjamin. They got to the hotel bar and drank Jaeger bombs alongside Red Bull and vodka. They smoked cigarettes outside after several drinks to get fresh air. Drunk now, Adam tells his new friends of what happened to Angela. I cannot believe she is dead, exclaimed Adam. As he is telling Jack about Stephanie, Benjamin presents a joint and starts smoking. The weed is shared amongst the crew in a puff-puff-pass fashion. After several rotations, Adam feels high and weary. Stumbling with his words, he proclaims his love for Stephanie. She's the girl of my dreams. Adam experiences mixed emotions of bliss and trauma. He feels amazingly high, but he imagines flashbacks of memories of his father passing and the recent death of Stephanie's mother. He attempts to change the negative thoughts for good ones. It is rare for him to be this high. Adam escapes to his room. He is met by an image of Ulysses. He threatens Adam. Stay away from Stephanie for your own good. Adam blinks, his eyes, and in a more sober position, realize he is at the lobby of the hotel. He sees what looks like Stephanie and follows her. It was her, looking as stunning as ever. She said, I left your belongings at the hotel front desk for you to retrieve. Jokingly, he mentioned, So where are we going tonight for our first date? She persisted, You should not be around me. They flirted back and forth as the two walked together, following the direction of Stephanie. 
still a bit lofty, Adam saw in passing alley what looked like Ulysses. At first he was afraid, but then he became confident. He wanted to be there for Stephanie. Adam wanted to protect her. It was nighttime, so Stephanie called the lift. Adam rushed in with her. She laughed and was amused by Adam. She thought he was silly and not competition for Ulysses. She was catching feelings for Adam, but did not want to give him false hope. They arrived at Stephanie's favorite shop. She describes how her and her mother always spent time at this boutique store. It sold books, coffee, tea, snacks, merchandise, cute outfits, and the such. He bought Stephanie a trinket to make her smile and showed her the picture of him and his father on his phone. They shared delightful memories of their parents, hoping for a better tomorrow. Perhaps their own love stood a chance. Their conversation was emotional but lighthearted. Adam stated, In this cruel world, there is no reason to be alone. Stephanie smiled and reacted, Maybe. They wanted to be removed from the sorrow, especially Adam. It seemed that Stephanie wanted to soak in it a bit longer. She described, My life is complicated. Adam responded, I do not care. The shop was closing, so they left. It was a full moon night. It was the perfect romantic setting. Adam knew he had to make his move soon. Stephanie said, I have to go. We'll meet again. Adam kissed her. She enjoyed every moment of it, but attempted to hide her true emotions. It was a tender kiss filled with passion. She said, Now I go and you stay. Adam smiled and happily said, See you tomorrow. They went their separate ways. Soon after, as Adam was walking, he was quickly approached by a dark and tall figure. He was attacked and punched. On the floor, half-conscious, he saw Ulysses and he said, All good things come to an end. Adam's eyes closed. As he awakened, he was approached by Jack. He rushed and checked on Adam. Are you okay? said Jack. Adam responded, I am all right. Adam described how amazing his night was with Stephanie. Truly a night to remember, said Adam. Jack was glad for Adam. He described, Me and Benji were looking for you everywhere. You disappeared from all the fun. They were close by to the hotel. Benjamin was waiting for them. Benjamin shouted, The night is still young. Jack agreed. Adam wanted to sleep, but the two persisted to go to a nightclub. Chapter 5. Continue. At the club, Adam felt out of place. He wanted to enjoy a single rum and coke in peace. Jack and Benjamin were still in party mode. Benjamin left the other two to find a girl that he supposedly knew that worked at the club. Left to their vices and Jack's ambition to have a splendid time, both of them attracted a lot of attention. Jack talked up and impressed the promiscuous ladies, speaking of lavishes and money, demonstrating to the girls that money was no object by buying them whatever drinks they desired. Jack was flattering and charming. Adam paid the girls no mind, but Jack persisted that he indulged them. Jack was the life of the party. A commotion started in Benjamin's direction. Jack and Adam rushed over. Security was grabbing Benjamin for supposedly harassing a woman who worked at the club. Benjamin shouted, It's not my fault, guys. He tried to describe how he used to date her, and now she just wanted to get Benjamin in trouble. The whole situation was confusing. Adam and Jack attempted to persuade the security to calm down, mentioning Benjamin is harmless but dumb. They were upset and grabbed all three of the group. They were brought to the attention of the owner at the back room of the club. The owner announced he was Vincent. He demanded that the three of them pay for the trouble they brought to the club. It was an unfair amount. He was angry and threatened them. The three attempted to make the situation manageable and fair, but it was of no use. Adam realized this was Vincent, Ulysses' boss. He asked, Do you know Ulysses? Vincent was intrigued. He demanded that Adam tell of Ulysses and Stephanie's whereabouts, as he was searching for them. He made a deal to help Vincent as long as he was free of payment and damages to him and his friends. Vincent begrudgingly accepted. The three left. Time was running out, and they had to decide what to do about Stephanie. The three of them separated to cover my ground. Also, Adam was perplexed and upset with her shady association with Vincent and Ulysses. He decided to go to the conservatory to find her there. He went inside, and she was nowhere to be found. He waited until evening, and she finally appeared. She said she was working but was happy to see Adam, this time making her affection known from the beginning instead of her usual facade of disapproval. Adam demanded they talk of something serious. Her instructor arrived and told her of a surprise. He guided them to his car and drove them to Stephanie's house. As Stephanie's home awaited a surprise party filled with fellow musicians, old friends, and drinks, they greeted her with this new revelation. She was ecstatic. She went to greet everyone and enjoy the festivities. Adam was forced to regain her attention after some time. He told her, I met Vincent. She was shocked. 
Do you know how dangerous Vincent is? Adam told his story of how he managed the whole situation. Stephanie could not believe it. Guests called Stephanie to come to the main room. They all joined to tell stories of memories they shared with her late mother, Angela. It was heartfelt and kind. She looked at photos of her and her mother together. It brought tears to her eyes. The crowd demanded she play something special. It was a solemn moment and she played classical music on the piano. It was captivating. Ulysses rushed into the house and threatened Adam, attacking him and becoming violent. The piano suddenly stopped playing and all attention was focused on Ulysses and Adam. Stephanie had a gun and demanded Ulysses to vacate the premises. Vincent shouts, I need to see you by tomorrow. He pushes Adam and abruptly leaves as he entered. It is safe to say the party came to an end after the incident. Adam stares with a blank face as he unknowingly plays a calming tune on the piano as the instructor talks to Stephanie. He is the last to leave the crashed party. Stephanie tells Adam that the instructor told him that her mother was able to keep Ulysses away. She kept him astray by blackmailing him with a specific video. The video was on her phone. Stephanie tells of the fact that she played piano for years, perfecting her skill. The only thing she enjoyed was playing. While she played, it gained the attention of a younger Ulysses. He courted her and against the approval of her mother. She was drawn to his dangerous appearance. Ulysses saw her as beautiful and her music tamed the beast within him. She described that it was a love not meant to be. Adam and Stephanie looked straight into each other's eyes. They admitted their love for one another. They kissed and passionately made love. Chapter 6. Drama Adam woke up the next day with Stephanie gone. She left a note that she would return with goodies. Adam searched through the house to pass the time. He found the phone with a video of Ulysses and Vincent killing a group of people. It was the blackmail he needed. He rushed to Stephanie's favorite boutique shop. She was enjoying a meal with Ulysses. Adam felt betrayed. Adam stated, I know what you did. I have the video of you killing those guys. Ulysses was fed up with Adam and he attacked him. Stephanie tried to ease the pain. She proclaimed, I do not love him. Leave him alone. Adam was in agony. The police started to arrive and Ulysses escaped without a trace. Adam was arrested. He viciously resisted. He was escorted back to the hotel. At the establishment, suspicious individuals attacked him. They worked for Vincent and Ulysses. Adam was able to escape away for a short time, but it was of no use. The evil individuals would beat and capture him. Chapter 7. Love at Last Adam arrives, half alive at a bridge with Vincent and Ulysses in the dark. They mock him. Ulysses says, Where is your lover now? Vincent laughed. Soon, Stephanie arrives with help from the police. She has shown the police the video recording on her mother's phone. She has the force of the police. The just officers who were not paid off by Vincent gang were waiting for proper evidence to arrest the gang members. Ulysses pushes Adam off the bridge. Stephanie shoots Ulysses. Adam in pain falls into the water. Ulysses in anguish falls to the floor. Vincent runs off but is tackled by the police and arrested. Ulysses in disbelief could not believe Stephanie would betray him. His last words, no, Stephanie. The police place their lights and check for Adam. He is alive in bloody torment but floating and breathing. Vincent above the bridge was taken to police cars. Stephanie gives a dirty look at Vincent as she rushes below the bridge. She is glad to see Adam in peace. He raises his hand in a peace sign. She rushes into the water and kissed Adam. Adam with a small smile stated, Love at last. Unbearable by Irving Philip Eugene Chapter 1. Unbelievable Tensions were high in America. It was a hot sunny day and there was a proclamation of Black Lives Matter. It was inclusive with minorities and a supportive group of Caucasian people. They protested peacefully, aspiring for a better country. However, there was opposition from a harmful bunch. They were loud and aggressive. The resistance went in to establish the old order of white supremacy. They were not connected to the true pulse of the nation and wanted to perpetuate inequality amongst different people. The opposition group carried weapons of guns, batons, and smaller devices. The police at the setting were neutral. Law enforcement being funded by tax-paying citizens to be neutral made them complicit in violence and on the wrong side of history. If only they had a just leader, someone that could provide guidance and righteous direction. Battle ensued between Black Lives Matter protesters and the resistance and factions across the United States. It demanded attention from the world. The government moved slowly and individuals were divided in support of the groups. In the mix of it all stood a young African-American named Clarence. He was involved with Black Lives Matter. Clarence protested naively. 
He wanted the improvement of black people in America, noticing the blatant discrimination of minorities but was unaware of the full extent. Clarence was unable to find a lucrative profession and experienced personal shortcomings of opportunity. He could not comprehend completely that certain white leaders of the establishment developed and supported a system to keep him poor. Clarence knew he was black and was not receiving a good chance in America. A country he grew up to believe to be so rich and supposedly free did not have a place for him. He had no direct malice to white people and even had white friends. Clarence was a 16-year-old from a middle-class household and observed the progression of other people and not himself. His friends brought to his attention of the movement and saw glimpses of police brutality. He realized with the companionship of good-hearted people and hoping for justice, he would join the movement. During the protest demonstration, Clarence went astray from his friends. He wanted to relax and get refreshments. Clarence caught the attention of some troublemakers. He was just finished getting Starbucks and members of the resistance yelled, All lives matter. A crowd developed and they ridiculed Clarence. The situation became volatile. Clarence retreated. Three white individuals of the resistance followed him. Clarence was isolated and trapped in an alley on the outskirt of town. Clarence shouted, You do not want to do this. They surrounded him and aggressively pushed him around. Clarence threw his coffee at one member of the resistance, burning him. He punched another combatant. The other racist kicked Clarence, causing him to fall to the floor. A brawl ensued with the troublemakers overpowering and outnumbering him. The attacks were violent with tandem punches and kicks to Clarence. It was unavoidable suffering. He became unconscious from the trauma. He thought of his loved ones to forget the pain. Eventually, the complacent thoughts became an imagination for revenge. Clarence was a bloody mess. The racists went through his belongings and stole whatever was valuable. They left the scene as they heard sounds of police sirens. The police arrived and were in shock of the battered image of Clarence. They discussed remorse for the mismanagement of the uncontrollable protests. The police understood that they were complicit bystanders. They quickly placed Clarence at the emergency room of the hospital. He suffered internal bleeding, broken bones, and needed plenty of stitches. After initial treatment, healthcare professionals stated he would need physical therapy, pain medications, and a cast for his arm. His parents were disappointed and sad. His mother was in tears. His father was angry and quiet. Clarence was disgruntled internally, but on the surface jaded. The police captain made an appearance to personally converse with Clarence. He described his disapproval of the fighting caused by the protests, but made it clear that he wanted Clarence to rise to the occasion. He offered mentorship and guidance. The officer stated that justice will be served. Investigations would take place. Journalists arrived to take pictures and notes of Clarence. He simply said, life is not fair. It made headlines. Clarence became an overnight star. Chapter 2, Pain. There was a long road ahead. Clarence had to go to mental and physical therapy throughout the week. Months passed by in agony. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and he developed an addiction to Oxycontin. Clarence was a troubled youth, more confused and misplaced than his experience with the Black Lives Matter movement. The organization reached out to him, but there was too much politics and bureaucracy for the quick satisfaction he wanted. He was the poster child for the revolution, but he wanted to take matters into his own hands. It was time for him to have his cast removed. He managed to continue to receive painkillers illegally through sufficient sources. With a lot of attention and no action, he decided to contact the police captain. The captain demonstrated enthusiasm and mentioned, you should join the force. Clarence agreed and trained under the academy. As time passed, he managed to pass all evaluations and became a police officer. He removed his addiction but kept a supply of pain relievers whenever he had an episode. He discreetly experienced night terrors and flashes of pain in his arm and back on certain days. Clarence patrolled the streets, stopping crime and enforcing the law. He did not let his negative experiences dictate his policing until now. Chapter 3, Revenge It was part of Clarence's duty to manage a new protest of Black Lives Matter in his town. This time the demonstration was greater than before. The disparity of America could not be ignored. People wanted change. It was Clarence's police job to maintain the peace. He noticed the same group members that harassed him. They were causing havoc to innocent protesters. In a blind rage, he attacked them. Clarence fought the three individuals, boxing them one by one. With each combat, he knocked them out with several punches. Clarence was determined and focused. He arrested the troublemakers and had clear conscience that he did the right thing. Loner by Irving Philip Eugene Chapter 1. Alone Irving sat outside at Montauk Bar. 
Drinking a Long Island iced tea, he contemplated about life. The air was fresh, and it was a sunny day. This part of New York represented an island culture of the Atlantic United States, rocky beaches that were only warm in the summer, riches extended in the Empire State, fancy shopping that possessed more than little trinkets of the Caribbean, to many a home away from home, financial prowess from other states or through the belly of the beast at New York City, inherited wealth that allowed vast privilege or newcomers who did not know how to spend their money. He thought of what he would do with his life. How will a nobody amount to something? Irving studied writing and literature at a state school, but had nothing to show for it. He was struggling at 25 years old after graduating college. Irving was in debt and escaped his troubles with the bottle. At this point in his life, cheap thrills were all he needed. He wondered how did successful writers of his time reach success. The grand publishing deals, the book tours, and commercial television and movie rights exploited for mass exposure. It did not seem fair. Life is not fair. Irving assumed there was something to it. He was raised that hard work into a craft or study always led to a suitable achievement. He thought of the classics. How could these established authors capture the culture and movement of a time and place in such a profound way? The envy between competitors, a love lost, wasting time in a world that never stops to amaze. Where would he stand his flag? Irving felt conquered rather than on a meaningful campaign. Battles of failed relationships and destructed friendships. He was alone. Irving needed to pave a path for himself. Removed from the old world of fake companionships, there needed to be a change. He started to vape outside. The nicotine calmed his nerves. His family disapproved, especially his mother, but a man must live. Irving used to smoke marijuana, and the nicotine was a legal way to cope. It is hard to remove bad college habits. The stress of assignments and essays were surmountable. Life cannot be a straightforward direction of hard work and no play. Somehow, Irving was able to pass and graduate. Many nights of writing and mornings of leisure, classes during the day seemed unnecessary, but the loans made him attend on most occasions. Countless days of not focusing in large room lecture halls. In the modern times of short attention span, he could not focus completely through the course. This left him in an unimaginable situations where he had to study on his own accord. Fraternity parties was the escape of the consistent classes, an opportunity to meet girls and drink after an exam. Irving did not realize at the time, but this would be his vice. With a few drinks, the world was simple. What seemed foggy became clear. Euphoria was more than a television series, it was a chase. Removing the strictness and constant struggle of everyday life, a drink would make the world fun and gave you the courage to talk to that unreachable girl and write that masterpiece, which appeared to far to reach. His uncle, Blake, arrived from the hotel they resided at. He would cover the bill and make my life more interesting. Irving was dependent on his family and elders to support him. He wanted to return the favor, but his book, Loner, had to reach acclaim. He had been working on this project for years. It was an incomplete manuscript, but he knew it would make a difference in the world if it was just processed through the right publisher and production. Blake stated, how are the books coming along? Irving knew he was a burden, and everyone wanted to know writing was more than a hobby. Profession required training, creating, and consistent success. He was waiting for the gatekeepers to let him in. Irving replied, the book is my masterpiece, and it will be influential. His uncle mentioned, I am not like your parents. You can rely on me. I love you, Neff. You can relax, and we can enjoy each other's company. Irving had the habit of believing he was hassle to people. It was how he was brought up. One must always be polite and considerate. His parents instilled in him that nobody wants to help you out of the kindness of their heart. Everything was give and take, a transaction in one way or another. Blake said, let us enjoy the town. I've never been to this part of Long Island. Irving, spending time at the end, sporadically through his life, wanted to be a good host. He showed his uncle the beaches, the boutique shops, and restaurants. It was summer, so there were high expectations in the air. Would they see an international celebrity, or would anything eventful occur? Shockingly, it was a regular day in America. His uncle tried to relate to his nephew. He illustrated the facts that he smoked marijuana to deal with the loss of his mother. I was the only thing that got him through the pain and depression. She died horrifically through a murder. No inheritance money and no love from family at the moment. Irving was distraught and felt his pain. They walked and conversed. Irving was developing a better understanding of his history. All things are not left to chance. He believed that he started smoking weed 
at one point in his life just as his ancestors. His uncle mentioned that he used to smoke cigarettes. There was a connection, knowing that his habits were predetermined. It lowered the blame for his mishaps. They moved along the beach as people enjoyed the good weather. It was lighthearted fun, but an uncle and a nephew discussed something of importance to Irving. They ate seafood and Irving drank himself to a better state of mind. There is something America must consult with relating to the notion that many Americans feel depressed and isolated during their developmental years in their 20s. The uncertainty of success holds a great toll. It appears as a suicidal experience without good support many will not make it through. Putting yourself on the line and hoping for a better tomorrow is painful. There are no true steps to achievement for the majority of people. Every day is a struggle, a blessing to be alive and a curse of no fulfillment of that life. Chapter 2. Home. Vacation was over. Everything seemed short-lived. Irving was back home at Stony Brook, Long Island, United States. It was a quaint college town, suburban by nature, surrounded by village towns in the northeast. It was an unknown pearl, a secluded neighborhood with tourist attractions like the harbor of Port Jefferson, a ferry away to New England, midway between New York City and Montauk, a getaway and home to many. There was a community of average people with high aspirations, a troublesome youth that escaped to the woods for reserve in the city for main attractions. It represented the mystical idea of a Great Gatsby location, but in modern times it developed to a more suitable family spot. Many children were raised with privilege and despair. Many possessed the basics for a decent quality of life, but few could manage the hope for more. Some were complacent and others strived for more. Reachable success made one famous. You could have a local sandwich named after you, invited to the best parties for being influential or excelling in sports. Football, baseball, and lacrosse seemed to be commonplace, whether it was a pickup game or committed excellence. The town would always come together to support county championship matches at the university. Money was not what it used to be. Families planned accordingly. There was a common decision to participate in the community college or state university. Education was important, but not an unrealistic expenditure. Some would use the stepping stone of local opportunities to pursue international travel and tutelage. It was a tight-knit coterie raised on family values and parochial conservatism. With progression of some and the advancement of internet technology, the small location has slowly broadened its horizons. In the winter, the city would focus on celebrations of holidays, trips to New York City through the Long Island Railroad to ice skate and see shows. In the summer, there would be travel to local beaches surrounding the peninsula. Jeeps could control the terrain of the island. Bonfires, fireworks, and nature made life simple, yet exciting. Irving lived with his family. Extended and nuclear members had a lot of influence on him. There was his father, mom, older brother, and uncle. His younger sister would visit from time to time. She was on to bigger and better things. She was studying to become a doctor at Howard University in Washington, D.C. The family made it a huge effort to support her by any means necessary. They sponsored her a condominium residence, and Irving allowed her to take his car. There was no doubt that she was the pride of the family. She culminated into the straightforward path to success that immigrant parents fought so hard to achieve. We all believed that studying with ambition and dedication would lead to success. His dad was the main organizer and contributor of the household, stern but showed his true playful color as the family aged. His ultimate concern was for safety and stability for his children. Dad and mom wanted security for their loved ones. Irving's mother was a caregiver in personality and profession. She always wanted to monitor the family and ensure good health. In a traditional home, his mother cooked to prepare daily dinners and wanted to clean to make a happy place. She decorated the dwelling in her image of beauty. Irving's father and uncle did not mind to help. Everyone participated in errands. Weekly grocery shopping and paying for repairs around the house were common. Initially, there was a divide between his uncle and father by being under the same roof. His family felt taken advantage of. It was another mouth to feed during struggling times. Irving did his best to keep the family at peace and together by consulting both parties on separate occasions. Irving's older brother, Victor, was finding his own ways to success, troubled by a long road to apply and complete medical school. The family was unaware if he had the discipline of the sister to attend and complete graduate school. In the meantime, he worked and helped the family when he was not enjoying a young life that would soon enter responsibilities. In a typical timeline of society, he should be further along. Irving, one year younger, was in the same boat. The only difference was after a college degree, 
Irving wanted to create. He believed his projects would provide true impact. He wanted to strike a deal to uplift his family, to give back, which was so long overdue. The ridiculous debt and loans seemed to be overwhelming and decided to take matters into his own hands and invest in himself. Obviously, this was risky, but at least he tried the conventional lifestyle. His father would always remind him of the importance of money as he worked a nine-to-five job for 25 years. It was a good-paying occupation. He started at a better time in America. Cheap education and reliable opportunities. His dad would say, Nobody respects you if you do not have money. This was honest and stirred motivation. Frustrated and disappointed to not find a job to support his writing after many applications, Irving was alone with his thoughts one evening. He questioned, Why has life not offered me a decent chance? Irving's mother noticed his disapproval. She described that Irving's father spent eight months without a decent job before he was born, and his parents got married. Insight like this meant the world to Irving. He was not alone in suffering. He started to believe that this is the normal course of young men in the world. Currently, he releases his works and started making meager revenue. Irving is prepared for good fortune. He posts his projects consistently and made notice to family and friends of all his works. At the moment, he offers his work for free or at cheap prices. Irving is starting to build a grassroots audience. With the right distributors, deals, and connections, he will become a household name. Some believe in others find disapproval, but he has to make the difference. Chapter 3, The Capital of the World There was a flashback to a more innocent time, a better time. Irv was staying at a Manhattan apartment. He stayed with his friends. The place was rented out by the aunt of one of his friends. She was worldly and energetic for her age. Parental supervision was different. The aunt wanted the high schoolers to feel welcomed and at home. She possessed cultured art and pretty plants. The aunt was seemingly single, fit, and utilized a yoga studio. She enjoyed healthy foods and liked a good time. It was a liberal lifestyle. The boys were accustomed to the New York City life from excursions with their parents in the past, but this experience was unalike. Many Long Islanders were free in their youth to diverge from the conservatism of their parents. Therefore, the boy got along with his aunt. To be young, wild, and free was the motto. The main purpose of the trip was to see Paul McCartney on his tour at Yankee Stadium, connecting modern times with the old. It was the new stadium. Irving and his partners lit and passed around a joint. It appeared customary to elevate the concert's experience. The aunt was accepting of their decision. That was the first moment the companions realized that some adults partied as well. In a funny mood, they walked through the bustling city. Streetlights seemed brighter and traffic moved in a more fantastic fashion. Everyone appreciated the magnificence of buildings with the same awe as trips when they were kids. The arena held much clout. People of all ages valued the vintage music. The show started in the evening with a colorful sky and special lighting of the sun as it prepared to set. It developed tonight with artificial luminescence from the stage. Woes of love songs and playful melodies made the crowd ecstatic. The teenagers were enticed. They conversed with silly jokes and sang along in a blissful manner. Irving took note as the capital of the world connected. Chapter 4, City of Light Older, with newfound freedom, Irving embraced Buffalo, New York. In a cold location with good-spirited people, he believed this would spark inspiration for his works. The winters were long, sports were entertaining, and the drinks were bountiful. A lively city possessing homegrown western New Yorkers, downstate commuters, northern Canadians, and a diverse international enclave. Living was affordable, and there were services common of mainstream New York. A center for entertainment and college neighborhoods, with plenty of restaurants and bars. Irving collected friends and roommates. Even when he was alone, he was not alone. Travels to grocery stores and movies were soothing. He had no car and kept a journal. Irving was a guest at a temporary home. The city accepted him. He passed the time by writing, studying, and drinking. Girlfriends were helpful at times. Other women carried fake smiles and hands that were not open, only seeking to use rather than bond. Irving did not sway from his values. He was genuine but kept a reserve around certain individuals. Writing was his true release. He wrote about the visitors that would arrive at his apartment, parents checking in on him, fun with roommates, and exploration of coffee shops, traveling across the border to Canada and drive rides to Niagara Falls. Casinos, boat rides at Canal Side, and walks at parks were all entertaining, staying inside during snowstorms with friends and discussing plans for the future. 
Irving would visit business for opportunities, establishing connections for projects and endorsements. Those were the benefits of residing in the major city. Concerts and events at Key Bank Arena were consistent. Production of art and enjoyment at Allentown were amazing. Irving realized he had experienced a great deal of New York. His family could no longer support this venture. It was time to return the favor. The escape was beneficial, but required more promise. Chapter 5, End of the Tour A chance to revisit Washington, D.C. became available. Irving couch-surfed at his sister's condominium. He wanted to ensure that she was happy and safe. Her mood was vibrant. She toured the city with him, visiting museums and restaurants. Historical sites brought back old memories. They discussed problems in good moments. Irving utilized this short stay to film videos. He has been documenting his life through many trips. Alone in the city, Irving wanted to capture life and share. There is an opportunity to deal his projects for the betterment of his family.